Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the joy of Christmas. Lord, it is such a delight for us to think about Christ's incarnation. It's a delight for us to sing these great songs, but most of all, Lord, it's a delight for us to contemplate the wonder of Christ coming to earth, becoming man, living and dying on our behalf. And we bless you, Father, for that work, and we praise you and will praise you for eternity for that. But now, Father, we turn specifically uh, to the life of Christ in the book of Mark, and we ask that you would help us as we study this passage. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased as a result of our time together in this text. And it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, where we'll pick back up with our study of the life of Christ through the Gospel of Mark. And we come this morning to chapter 2, really the final verses of chapter 2, into chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And some of you might be you know, looking at the number of verses we're covering, and you know me, and you know that that's impossible. And it is impossible. Uh, so Lord willing, this will be part 1 of 2. Next week we'll cover uh, the rest that I don't cover this morning. But there really are, in this section, two uh, specific sections. So it's one larger grouping of text from verse 23 all the way to verse 6 of chapter 3. And there are two sections within this pericope. So chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, and then verses 3, 1 to 6, those form their independent sections, but they're both under the heading of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this is really a section about Jesus' Lordship. And our focus this morning will be on verses 23 to 28. And what you'll see as we work through this text together is the argument of this little section and, and going into chapter 3 is that Jesus alone is the true Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus alone is the true Lord of the Sabbath. He has rivals, of course, and we're going to meet with them in this text. But he has rivals uh, even today. He's always had rivals to his lordship. And actually, you sit here this morning either as a rival to Jesus and his lordship or as a servant of Jesus the Lord. And that's really the only two categories any one of us can fall in. Either we are submitted to Jesus as the true Lord, and that encompasses every detail of our lives, or we are rivals, opponents to Jesus. And what we are going to see in our text this morning is that against all rivals, Jesus stands as the only Lord. You can deceive yourself into thinking that you are the Lord of your life. You can deceive yourself, you can live under that delusion. But there is only one Lord, and it's Jesus. And you can either bow to him now, or as Philippians says, you can bow to him when he returns. And my hope for you this morning is that you will see from this text that Jesus is the true Lord, not only of the Sabbath, but of life uh, in full, and that you will joyfully submit to him and live underneath his lordship. Well, to help us work through this section, I want us to look at verses 23 to 28 under two headings. You have those in your outline there. The first we'll call the rivals to Jesus' lordship. All right, that's verses 23 to 24. And then in verses 25 to 28, we'll see the defense of Jesus' lordship. So we see the rivals to Jesus' lordship and then the defense of his lordship. All right, so I invite you to stand with me as we read the word of God. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and, he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate 
the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You can be seated. Now, before we look at the rivals of Jesus' lordship in these verses, we need to zoom out a bit and remind ourselves what's been going on throughout chapter 2. You'll remember that the opposition in this chapter against Jesus is steadily growing until it reaches a fever pitch in chapter 3 and verse 6. But beginning in chapter 2, the Pharisees, you'll remember those are the religious leaders of Israel, they take issue with Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Then they take issue with the fact that Jesus and his disciples are befriending tax collectors and sinners. And then we saw last time we were together that they also took issue with the fact that Jesus' disciples just wouldn't conform to really the religious standards of the day, namely the traditional fast days of the Pharisees. Now, all of these scenarios throughout chapter 2 came as significant issues for the Pharisees. These were not just minor things to them. These were major issues and significant problems for them, mainly because Jesus was refusing, and his disciples, to fit into the legalistic mold that they had formed. And so Jesus was actually, as he continued to teach, was emerging as a rival to their leadership and their authority. And so that's where we see, uh, that's where we find ourselves right here in this text. And we see that in verse 6 of chapter 3, it all culminates with the Pharisees saying, we've had enough, we're done with this man who's assuming to be an authority over us, let's kill him. And what we want to be clear about here, especially as we study this passage, is that there are two authorities that have emerged on the scene, Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This is a rivalry. There's no doubt about it. And the rivals are marked by two different interpretations and applications of the law of God. The Pharisees have effectively assumed lordship over God's law. You need to see that. They, they see themselves as the lords, as the police, as the keepers of the law of God. And at this point in history, they have jurisdiction. And they have the respect of all the religious people around them. And they're in charge. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And he's not bowing to their authority, but actually opposing it. And naturally, their outcome is we, we want to get rid of this guy. And in a very real sense of what we're going to see this morning, the climactic offense that Jesus commits is what they see as Jesus's breach of the Sabbath. Okay? And that's where Jesus essentially uh, exercises lordship over the Sabbath and does, as it were, what he wants to do and doesn't submit to them. And then he finally, in verse 28, He claims to be the Lord over the Sabbath itself. That's a massive claim and probably the most offensive thing in this whole text. And we won't have time to look at it in detail. We'll pick it up next week, I think. But All right, so I understand, and if you're like me, that this seems a little bit odd. Of all the things Jesus could do, why did the Pharisees get so worked up about Jesus' Sabbath breaking? Out of all the things, why does it climax with this offense? Why the Sabbath? Well, we need to understand the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. In the old, under the Old Covenant, rather, there were two observances that set God's people apart from the world. Two of them. Circumcision and the observance of the Sabbath. Those were the two main um, marks of distinction between the Lord's people and the world. And the Sabbath observance, it extended from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And the keeping of the Sabbath 
was fundamental to Jewish identity. And really, it was a key aspect to living faithfully before God. If you wanted to live faithfully, you had to observe the Sabbath. This was actually, uh, this was God's good and right and clear commandment. It's hard to get any clearer than work six days and stop working on the seventh day. Okay? Very clear. And it, in fact, the fourth commandment, which is the uh, regulation for the Sabbath, is the longest commandment of all the other commandments. And it required God's people simply to stop working on the seventh day. That's very simple. It's not that complicated. Work six days, take the seventh day off. And all of that really was in commemoration of the Lord's rest on the seventh day, Genesis 2-3. He works six days to create, then he ceases from his labor, and as a pattern for his people, he calls them to imitate him. The core of the Sabbath was that God's people should stop their normal work to rest and focus their attention on the Lord. Now, I want you to see the simplicity of that. Okay? Very simple, not complicated. Now, we have, as humans, a remarkable ability to complicate the simple. Right? You know that. You're all nodding your head. Well, this is what the Pharisees do. We'll see. But let me, let me make a couple of comments here about the Sabbath. God said in Exodus 31, 12 to 13, that the Sabbath itself would function for his people as a sign, right? a token, a sign between him and his people, and specifically the people of Israel. And he goes on to say, so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, I want you to just listen to that. That's verse, Exodus 31, verse 13. So that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You stop working and rest so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That was essentially the point. You rest from your work and remember that I am actually the one who's doing all the work to provide and keep you and make you holy. Right? You rest, and while you rest, you're demonstrating that you trust me. You're demonstrating your faithfulness to me. You're demonstrating that you are dependent upon me. Okay? But somewhere along the way, God's people began to lose this proper, simple perspective of the Sabbath and, and turn it into something that God never intended it to be. And that somewhere along the way was in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. It was during this time that the Pharisees and, and really the sort of tradition of the elders of the Jewish people emerged. And there were definite benefits to their ministry, and they did some good things. But what we know them uh, best for is Jesus' rebuke of them for adding to the law of God all of these uh, additional regulations and rules that God had never instructed. And I want to show you some of them. I think it's very interesting, and I think you'll have a little more sympathy and compassion for Jesus as he deals with these people when you see some of the things they did. So what they did was that they took the law of God, the law that was sufficient and perfect and everything that God's people needed for life and godliness, and they wanted to make it a little clearer. Right? They wanted to make it a little more helpful. There's a good application there. Right? God's law, his word, is perfect. It doesn't need your help. Right? It doesn't need your, your additions. It doesn't need you at all, really. Uh, God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. Anytime we want to add to it, take from it, not only is that a sin, but it actually becomes a burden on people. And this is what the Pharisees had done. They positioned themselves as the lords of God's law, and they added to it a series of narrowly regulated kinds of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. This is from the Mishnah, which essentially is a codification of the Pharisaic tradition. I want to read you. They had 39 categories of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. All right, Because God's word wasn't clear enough. Stop working wasn't clear enough. They wanted to just really bring some specificity. So here's what they did. 39 categories of work. It begins this way. There are, these are the types of works prohibited on the Sabbath. One who sows and one who plows. One who reaps and one who gathers sheaves into a pile. And one who threshes, removing the kernel from the husk. That's pretty specific. 
and one who winnows threshed grain in the wind. All of this is like farming stuff, and that's pretty reasonable. But then they, it goes on to say this. Notice the specificity. One who shears wool and one who whitens it. One who combs the fleece and straightens it. One who dyes it and one who spins the wool. And one who weaves two threads. Don't do that on the Sabbath. Weaves two threads and one who severs two threads. Don't get out your scissors and cut that thread. All right, that's work. Don't you know this is what God commanded in the fourth commandment. One who severs two threads. One who ties a knot. This is, this is, these are their rules, all right? One who ties a knot, one who unties a knot, and one who sews two stitches with a needle, as well as one who tears a fabric in order to sew two stitches. Do you see the specificity there? Now, that's quite a ways removed from remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't you agree? It actually goes further. It goes further, prohibits even the writing of more than two letters on the Sabbath and the erasing of letters on the Sabbath and even dictates the amount of grain you can carry. And I want you to hear this. Listen to the prohibition. One who carries out straw in measure equivalent to a cow's mouthful is liable. (laughs) The measure that determines liability for ears of grain is equivalent to a lamb's mouthful. The measure that determines liability for grass is equivalent to a goat's mouthful, which, of course, is smaller than that of a lamb. The measure that determines liability for garlic leaves and onions that you can carry into your house, if they are moist and fit for human consumption, is equivalent to a dried fig bulk. If the garlic leaves and onion leaves are dry, the measure for liability is equivalent to a goat's mouthful. This is from the Mishnah. Okay, mission to 7.2. You can look it up yourself. But you get the point, right? This is what Jesus was dealing with. This kind of over-the-top, minutia-infatuated law-keeping. And so these guys were just not happy if anyone modified or went against their strict observance of their own additional laws. No wonder Jesus had such harsh words for these people. Right? This is... This is um, essentially becoming to God's people through from the closing of the Old Testament to the time Jesus arrives on the scene. What has happened is they've loaded on God's people all of these minutiae, all these really small, don't cut thread, don't tie knots, don't draw, don't erase, don't do all of this stuff. So you have people who are paralyzing, essentially can't do anything. That's why in Matthew 23, 4, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and said this, they tie up heavy burdens, and lay them on men's shoulders. That's exactly what they were doing. That's exactly what legalism does, right? You're, you, you can't do this, you must do this. Legalism always comes as a burden on people, sort of ties up the law as a heavy weight and places it on the back of an individual and crushes them. And this is what the Pharisees had done. Now, this was the rival view of Old Testament interpretation. And it was the the view that was in the majority when Jesus comes on the scene. And so Jesus said, these men tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That text makes more sense to you now, doesn't it? That was the situation. Now, can you imagine our Lord's perspective? He's left heaven and come to earth to save his people. And here are the religious leaders of Israel. And this is what they are doing to the apple of God's eye. This is what they are doing to the people that God so dearly loves. They have weighted them down with added extra-biblical requirements. These men were supposed to be God's, the shepherds of God's people, loving them, caring for them, helping them to do and walk in God's ways. And what they had done was they laid these heavy weights on them and said, lift it. I'm just telling you what to do. I'm not going to help you do any of it. They were treating God's sheep like mules and loading them down 
with burdens that were far too heavy for any sheep to lift. And not only that, they had exalted themselves over the the lay person, and as these people cowered under the weight of their additional laws, it lifted up the Pharisees in their own thinking. Right? It was a terrible scenario. And so, they seem to have a very specific... um, Maybe I'll put it this way. They had a very uh, high priority for the Sabbath as kind of the culmination of of legal observance, of of exercising, displaying your righteousness. And so that's exactly why in chapter 2, verse 23, they take such an issue with Jesus' disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath. If you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath... How dare you pluck grain on the Sabbath? And so here are Jesus and his disciples walking along the way, and they began to pluck heads of grain. This would have likely been wheat or barley growing in a field. They would have grabbed the wheat off the top, rubbed it together. The wind probably would have blown the chaff away, and then they would have eaten it, probably breakfast on their way to synagogue. Okay? This was totally permissible by the Old Testament standards. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you can eat a little of their grain, but you can't go and harvest their field. Okay. The point here is that in a moment of necessity, you're traveling, you don't have enough food, Love demands that the, the landowner be generous enough to say, of course, you can have a head or two of the grain. And love also demands of the one getting the grain that they're not going to take, you know, they're not going to eat the landowner out of house and home. All right? Love is the rule here. And this sort of interaction between traveler and landowner was permitted and reflective of actually the entire spirit of the Old Testament law. That is, love. How does Jesus uh, summarize the law itself? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we see in in Jesus here and the disciples is they're simply enjoying um, what God has provided for them in this grain. They're not doing anything unlawful. They're abiding in the loving God-ordained intention of the law. Okay? But look at verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And their question really is a non-question. It's more like an indictment. It's more like, look, look what they're doing. Literally, their, their statement is, Why are they doing what is not authorized or permitted? On the Sabbath. The question is, permitted or authorized by whom? Who's the Lord of the Sabbath? Whose rules, whose interpretation is going to win the day? And the answer, of course, is they're not breaking God's laws, we've seen. They're breaking the extra-biblical guidelines of the Jewish leaders. It's their perverted application of the law. And so what we see then are these two rival views of the law, right? We're under point one, the rivals to his authority. And we see these two rival views emerging. And the Pharisees have their view, and they don't want Jesus to usurp it. And so they look for an opportunity to pounce on Jesus' disciples. And actually to school Jesus. Just think about this. Hear this and let this settle. To school Jesus on the proper interpretation of the law got to see the audacity here. I mean, here is Jesus, right? Jesus, God incarnate, the Word made flesh, the promised Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of God, and as we'll see in verse 28, the Lord, the owner, the possessor, the giver of the Sabbath law itself. And they have the audacity to come up to him and tell him how they need He and his disciples need to observe the law that Jesus himself is the Lord over. Jesus could have rightly and simply rebuked them for their pride and audacity. 
but he doesn't do that. He was incredibly gracious here, and he actually lays out something of an argument defending his own lordship over the Sabbath, even as he defends the actions of his disciples. And that brings us to the second point, the defense of Jesus' lordship. We've seen the rivals emerge. Now we see Jesus' defense, and this makes up really the core of this text. And what Jesus does here, he essentially appeals to three realities to make his point that he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. Three realities. And the first we see is in verse 25 and 26. And that is, it's, he appeals to Scripture. Scriptural authority or a scriptural example. It's an appeal to Scripture. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read? You've got to love that. Have you never read? Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus isn't appealing to tradition. He is appealing to Scripture. Now, Jesus is our model. We follow him. Scripture is the authority of our lives. And so Jesus here comes and he says, Have you never read your Bibles, essentially? Don't you read your Bibles? This would have come as a, a rebuke, a painful rebuke to the Pharisees. Because remember, they, these are the experts of the law. It's like going to a seminary professor and saying, have you, have you ever read the Bible? And, and it's plural here, so it's, it's really, Jesus says, have y'all never read? Have y'all never read this? Now, clearly, they would have read this, known the story. But the point Jesus is going to make is that somehow, although their head is full of information, they've missed the point of the text. Now, there's an application, right? I mean, how easy is it for you to come, hear the Bible taught, memorize Scripture, have your head full of biblical truth, and entirely miss the point of God's Word? It's much easier to be a hearer of the Word than a doer. We are, by default, hearers of the Word. That's what we do. We just hear. We hear, we hear, we hear. And Jesus said, the foolish hearer is the one who just hears the word, and it has zero effect on their life. So we don't want to be that. We, want to, we don't want to be the kind of person who's an expert in the Bible, but whose life remains unchanged by the truths of Scripture. Well, let's, let's go on. So let's look together at Jesus' response. And he said, this is verse 25, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need, he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Have you never read that, he says. But I want to I point out a couple of things. And what I want you to notice first here is that Jesus frames David's actions in this story under the necessity, or under the banner, rather, of necessity or need. All right, look at the text. He says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? Now, this is going to be a refresher on your Old Testament knowledge. Why was David in need? Well, it goes all the way back to the long, embittered conflict between David and Saul in the Old Testament. You remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. And as the young David began to emerge as a warrior and leader in the midst of God's people, David's reputation, his growing reputation, incited Saul's jealousy. And soon, out of his jealousy of David... Saul decided to do what? Kill David. Now think about what's happening in this text. Two rival authorities, right? Jealousy is certainly happening. And here you are, the Pharisees, rather, are seeing Jesus emerge as a teacher surpassing anything anyone has ever seen, and they are jealous. It's really a striking parallel. David's reputation incited Saul's jealousy. Jesus' growing reputation and authority incited the Pharisees' jealousy. And so, 
just like Saul, they decide to kill Jesus. Saul's not the guy you want to be like in the Old Testament. All right? So here, then, back to our story of David and Saul. David finds himself on the run from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him. And early on in the story, David fled from a town called Gibeah to the city of Nob, which was about one mile north of Jerusalem. And he arrived at the tabernacle there, which had been moved from Shiloh to Nob temporarily. And David comes, he's fleeing, he's, he's trying to save his life from the man who has the most authority in the world at that point, Saul, or at least in David's world. And he's essentially the president of the U.S. is trying to kill him, right? And so David's running. He has no time to gather food, no time to gather weapons. He's running away. He comes to the, the tabernacle, and he's also not alone, right? He has his men with him who are traveling with him. And they come to the priest, the tabernacle, a safe place. They're starving, and they're desperate for food and provisions. And in God's providence, the only food available for David and his men is the consecrated bread, very special bread. It's the bread of the presence. And so what is the priest going to do? Ahimelech is the priest. He recognizes his spiritual obligation not to keep this bread safe in the tabernacle, but to give it to David. He recognizes that the preservation of David's life is more important than the upholding of the ceremonial regulations regarding the bread of the presence. Now that seems so obvious to us, but you have to see that what's going on here is a rival interpretation of the law that said the most important thing is the letter and minutia of the law that we've also added to it. And Jesus is coming along and saying, the person, compassion, necessity, love to people is the whole spirit and substance of the law itself. Well, so the priest gives the food, the bread to David, and we see then that compassion is what motivates, or rather really necessity, is what motivates the priest to break the regulations regarding the bread. Now, it's significant. This is really important. David is not punished for what he does uh, in this episode. Ahimelech is not punished for what he does. In fact, the only person who's upset about this whole scenario is actually Saul. Right? Saul's the one who's upset, and out of his anger, he actually turns and commands his men to kill all of the priests in the tabernacle. Right? Saul is not a guy you want to be like. Okay? He, he com commands his men to kill 85 priests that day, including Ahimelech. But one of the priests actually gets away. And there's a connection here that's important. This priest that gets away in the story, he's most likely serving as an assistant to Ahimelech, and his name was Abiathar. He was Ahimelech's son, and he actually became the high priest during David's reign. And he has a significant ministry and actually became better known than Ahimelech. And played a more significant role in the life of God's people. Now, I hope you're asking, why is he saying all this about Ahimelech and Abiathar? I hope you're asking that. Well, look back at Mark 2. I just want you to see this. Mark 2, 25 and 26. Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry. And how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this point is it has to do with the integrity of the Word of God, okay? Skeptics will look at this, and they will say, look, even Jesus didn't know the Old Testament. I mean, here he says that it's, it's Abiathar that was the high priest, and everyone knows that it was actually Ahimelech who was the high priest. So Jesus is wrong, the Bible's wrong, you can't trust the Bible, um, that's why I'm an atheist and I go on my way. Well, most of the time, these kind of arguments are simply, you know, defended. And I just want to give you a, a few reasons why Jesus references Abiathar and not Ahimelech. 
So first, Abiathar was most likely assisting his father there, so he's there with him. There are 85 priests in the tabernacle. Abiathar is the son of Ahimelech. It's, it's not unreasonable to think that Abiathar was the assistant of Ahimelech and would have had some role to play in the giving of the bread. But I think what is even more here and more objective is that Jesus is probably, in this passage, making a general citation of the story uh, for his hearers. Now, I, I, I'm going to prove this. I hope you are convinced. So Jesus, when he says that in the time of Abiathar, the Pharisees would have known exactly where he was talking about. Now, you may ask, well, why doesn't he just to say, you know, 2 Samuel chapter 20? You know, why does he not do that? Well, because he didn't have the liberty to do that, because it wasn't until 1551 that chapter and verse divisions that you have in your Bible appeared. All right? So for most of history, there have not been chapter and verse divisions in Bibles. So what they would do, and this is what Jesus does here, and he actually does this in Mark chapter 12 as well, they would reference a major scene, major character in the section of a scroll, and everyone would know, oh, that happens on this page. So, for example, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus interacting with the scribes, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? Literally, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush. You know, the passage about the bush. And he can't say, he's talking about Exodus 3.6, but he can't say that because there are not chapter and verse divisions. We would have to do the same thing uh, if we were living in Jesus' time. And actually, we all have um, a measure of gratitude, really, to give a man named Robert Estein. He's commonly known as Stephanus. He was the guy who put chapter and verse divisions in the Bible in 1551. Imagine what your small group would be like, your Bible study would be like, if you couldn't say, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Okay? You should thank Stephanus. All right? Write him a, a, a letter. All right. So that's what's going on here in reference to Abiathar. You can trust the Word of God. Every time skeptics, critics of Scripture bring some accusation against the Word of God, there is usually a very simple, reasonable explanation. And, and I don't mean this derogatory, but most people make these kind of arguments out of ignorance. They just don't know. So they see something, it's an opportunity for them to, lounge, you know, to lunge at someone and say, you shouldn't believe the Bible. It's easily disproven with a little bit of you know, um, historical research. Okay, now, a more significant question than that is actually this. Of all the texts that Jesus could have cited to defend his disciples and himself, his view of the Sabbath, why does he choose this example? Right? Why choose this one? Of all the places he could go, why does he choose this episode with David and Ahimelech and the bread of the presence? Well, I will submit to you that Jesus did this very intentionally. This was not accidental. This was not just him reaching desperately for some proof text. No, this is very purposeful and very intentional. Let me give you two reasons why. First, the event with David clearly parallels what Jesus has just done with his disciples, right? Probably his disciples, have, they've risen. They're on their way to synagogue. Their priority was not eating breakfast, right? They're with the Messiah, the King. I mean, who's thinking about breakfast? Some of you might be thinking about breakfast at that point. Um, but they were not thinking about breakfast. They're going to synagogue. Exciting things happen at the synagogue with Jesus, right? So they're going. Who cares about breakfast? On the way, they grab some breakfast in a field. So what Jesus does here parallels exactly what David did with his men. So when he uses this example, it's inviting the Pharisees to draw a comparison between David and Jesus. Now you know why he would do that. Now, you know that David was Israel's greatest king and the one through whom all the messianic promises would be fulfilled. This is just the beginning. We're going to see more references to David in the, in, in the Gospel of Mark. And all of them are going to sort of suggest to us that Jesus is the royal son of God who has absolute authority. Now this would have come, uh, not, it wouldn't have fallen on deaf ears rather, with the Pharisees. Because during the intertestamental period... 
there were a series of benedictions or prayers that were developed, and they would recite them at the conclusion of every service. And listen to one of them regarding the Messiah. This is how it reads. Speedily cause the offspring of David, your servant, to flourish and lift up his glory by your divine help because we wait for your salvation all the day. They knew the Messiah was coming from the lineage of David. And so for Jesus to say, hey, don't you know what David did? All of a sudden, they're going to see themselves, right? You've got two rivals. Here is Jesus and David, and here are the Pharisees and Saul, right? You don't want to be on Saul's team. And David is emerging, and rather, Jesus, rather, sorry. Jesus is emerging, and we'll see this throughout Mark, as the authoritative son of God from the lineage of David. All right, so that's the first reason. second reason why I think he uses this example is that the account of David underscores the true intention of the law. Underscores the true intention of the law. Here's what I mean by that. The issue at hand in the story of David is really the bread of the presence. Now, if you're like me, you, had to, you don't have a lot of knowledge about the bread of the presence right now. I needed to do some research, and I did that this week. This is why I, you know, I enjoy being a pastor. I get to study these kind of things. And so let me help you understand a little bit about the bread of the presence. There is, these were 12 loaves of bread that were set out before the Lord each Sabbath on the table in the holy place. All right, So you're in the tabernacle, 12 loaves of bread. It's very peculiar, but it's all purposeful. Now, backing up a little bit, in pagan religions of the ancient world, worshipers were required to set food out for their deities. Why was that? Well, because the, the pagan gods were dependent on their people to provide them with food. Right? You go work out in the field, you're working for the god. Right? So you work, you, you, know, you sow, you harvest all your grain, you make bread out of it, you bring it to the god, because he needs to eat, just like you. He's just a little higher than you are, and he needs you to bring him food. And so some people look at what uh, Israel did with the bread of the presence in the tabernacle, and they say, look, see, Israel is just like the other religions of the ancient Near East. Well, not exactly. Far from that, actually. Uh, Jesus, or rather, the, the Old Testament, Israel, these instructions that God had given his people, it was not so that God could somehow have 12 loaves of bread at the end of a hard work week to come into the, taber the tabernacle and consume it for his own well-being. Right? God clearly did not need this bread. Right? So rather than it sort of disappearing and they saying that the gods ate it, at the end of the week, the priests were permitted by God to eat the bread. The bread was there, and at the end of the week, the priests were able to take the bread and receive it as God's provision for them. In fact, the bread of the presence is tied directly to Exodus 16 and God's provision of manna for his people in the wilderness. So the bread of the presence then was not for God to eat. Right, this is going to be important as Jesus says something in a couple of verses. The bread of the presence was not for God. Right? The bread of the presence was for man. It was for the priests to eat, and it was for man to remember Exodus 16 that God was the one who provided for his people. Now that is still true. God is the one who provides. He provided in the wilderness. He provided for his people throughout their exile, and he provided in this text for the disciples as they missed their breakfast on the way to synagogue. God is the provider for his people. Pagan religions taught that God was capricious and dependent on humans. The God of Israel was the very opposite. He stood utterly independent from his creatures, but had willingly bound himself to them by a covenant. And therefore, he loved them fully and was unchangeably committed to them and their flourishing. He loved them. And the law that he had given them was for their good. The bread of the presence was a reminder that God loved his people and he would provide for them as he always did. 
So again, goes back to Jesus' summation of the law and the prophets in Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. It's all about God's love, and it's all about your love for others. It's the entire spirit of the law. And we see this clearly in the episode with Ahimelech and David. Right? So in this episode, it's the love of God and the love of Ahimelech for David that's exalted. David comes, and Ahimelech sees him and is moved with compassion for him and meets his need. Now, we're going to see that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Ahimelech gave the bread to David, and then David, also imitating God, takes the bread and gives it to his men because of his love and care for them. Their actions upheld the spirit of the law and demonstrated their compassion and really the compassion and kindness of God. The law itself was meant to make God's people peculiar, was meant to make them missionaries in the world so that people look at them and they say, what sort of people are those Israelites? Now we know that they fell off and it didn't work, but in, in these moments in Israel's history, you see what the law was supposed to be like. You see what the law, the effect the law was supposed to have on God's people. It was to make them a God-centered and others-oriented people. And that's what we see with Ahimelech. Now, the problem with the Pharisees was that they acted as if God only cared about his law and not for people. They put these two realities, God's care for his people and God's holiness and the upkeep of his law, they put those as really opposing one another, and their actions represented God to the people as overly scrupulous, overly concerned about the law and the minutia of the law, when the reality was that God had given his law as an expression of his love and care for his people. Okay, Let me, let me make a brief application here. We need to all be aware that we do not forget that our priority is to love people. We can often look at people as, as it's been said, as a problem with two legs. But people are meant to be loved by us. We need to make sure that we don't forget and lose, rather, the proper perspective of God's word. Whereas we are not to just beat people up with the Bible... Right? We are to love them with the Bible. Right? We're to love them. We, we want to be careful that we don't see people as problems to be solved rather than as people to be loved. Okay? We want to make sure we prioritize the right things. Ahimelech, let me, let me bring this, hopefully clarify it a little bit. Ahimelech could have said, oh, David, I'm sorry. I know you're tired, exhausted, and you're about to die. But you know, I have this regulation, and I'm, I'm bound by it. I hope, you know, be warmed and filled. All right, go your way. But Ahimelech was moved by compassion because of the other points of the law that mo- moved him to love his brother as himself. We just want to be careful that we don't, you know, hold people at arm's length or that we don't say be warmed and filled. We don't treat people as problems but we look at them as people to be loved. That's the whole point. And, and by, with God's help, by the grace of God, Calvary is a place where that is done excellently. Okay, we have to move on. So that's his first appeal, right? Jesus, this is his defense of his lordship, and his first appeal was an appeal to Scripture. But then, in verse 27, Jesus appeals to something different, something we could call biblical reasoning. Biblical reasoning. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is biblical reasoning. This is really a deduction from the story of David he's just referenced. Just as the bread of the presence was not for God, but for man, so the Sabbath itself was not for God, 
God doesn't need it. Right? God doesn't need the rest. Now, we know that, but the Pharisees had seemingly forgotten that. The Sabbath was actually God's gift to man, His love gift to man. You work six days and you rest, and you enjoy meditating on my word, worshiping me, fellowship, and cease all your normal labor. God didn't create humanity in order to enslave them to the rituals of the Sabbath. But that's what the Pharisees, I mean, this is what they were teaching, essentially. You exist to observe God's law. And Jesus is saying, God's law exists because God is immensely loving and gracious and cares for you, and He's giving his, giving, given you His law as a love gift to uphold you and direct you and make you into His kind of person. The Sabbath in particular, so that you will not arrogantly think you can provide and sustain your own existence. Work six days, rest, and trust me, and you'll find the joy that you need for life. So the Pharisees had certainly complicated things a bit, and they had weighed the Sabbath down with their own regulations, and in doing so, they lost sight of the very point that Jesus makes, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, we are running out of time here, and I thought this would happen. Um, let me just, as, a, as an aside here, uh, I need to say a couple of things about the Christian and the Sabbath. All right, it's a Sabbath is a gift, like Jesus says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, then what, how do we enjoy the Sabbath gifts as participants in the new covenant? It's a good question. Let's work through it really quickly. And let me just make a point here. We do not observe the Sabbath any longer. And we do not call the Sabbath, or Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. We do not observe the Sabbath any longer. And we don't call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. And let me, let me tell you why we don't do that. Okay? And I'll, I'll try to be brief. First, according to Exodus 31, 16 to 17, I read that earlier, the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. I encourage you to read that, Exodus 31, 16 to 17. That's a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, as Christians, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are under the New Covenant. And the New Covenant has its own terms, its own signs. Second, there are no commands in the New Testament for us to keep the Sabbath. No commands in the New Testament for us to keep the Sabbath. Every other command, nine of them, are repeated in the New Testament, except for the Sabbath, except for observing the Sabbath. Third, in Acts 15, it's called the Jerusalem Council, when the churches got together, the, the leadership of the churches got together, and we're trying to figure out, what do we do with all these Gentiles who want to be a part of the church? How do we handle all the Gentiles? Well, they gave them some specific instructions, but they didn't require them, the nations, to observe the Sabbath. That was not part of their regulations. Okay? And fourth, and this is probably the most explicit, clear statement. The New Testament tells us we are not to judge or evaluate one another based upon Sabbath observance. The New Testament tells us we are not to judge one another based upon our observance or non-observance of the Sabbath. In other words, I'll put it this way. Sabbath keeping is not a requirement under the New Covenant. Now, I understand there are different views about that. I'm just telling you where we fall and where we think the New Testament falls. And there are a couple of texts we could go to. Um, Maybe I'll give those to you. Romans 14.5, if you want to look that up. Romans 14.5, Colossians 2.16-17. Now, it may go without saying, based on all that I just said, that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath either. So it's not that we just say, okay, we don't observe the Sabbath on Saturday, but 
according to the New Testament, we, we understand that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, Sabbath either. In Revelation 1.10, Sunday is clearly called the Lord's Day. It's never call, called the Christian Sabbath, the New Sabbath. What we see throughout uh, the Gospels and Acts and into 1 Corinthians is that the church worshipped on Sunday, which was the Lord's Day, and they did this in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, So nowhere in Scripture is the, the Sabbath, Sunday called the Christian Sabbath, and nowhere in Scripture do we see the Sabbath occurring on any other day than on Saturday. Okay, tracking with me? Now, let me just read this for you. This is Colossians 2, 16 to 17. It's very helpful. Actually, why don't you turn there so you can see this yourself. Colossians 2, verse 16. All right, Colossians 2, 16. So we're, we're, I'm here because we're trying to figure out, okay, well, if the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, what relationship does that have to us as New Covenant Christians? Okay, Colossians 2.16. I think it's a very helpful synopsis of uh, the New Testament's view of the Sabbath. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Now, that means that we, under the New Covenant, are no longer under the dietary restrictions of the law. Right? Jesus clearly declared all foods clean. In the Gospel of Mark 7, we'll see that. But here, Paul says, you are not to judge others in regard to food or drink. We are not under the Mosaic dietary restrictions. All right? He says, or in respect to a festival or a new moon. Now, these are, he's referring here to the annual religious celebrations like Passover, like Pentecost. We don't do that anymore. I mean, you can, if you want to observe Pentecost, Romans 14 says you have freedom to do that. But you can't judge other people because they're not observing Pentecost. Okay? Or the Feast of Booths. They're not in their tents out in the street. All right. Or, he says, a Sabbath day. By the way, a booth is a tent. Feast of Booth, tents. Okay. All right. Or a Sabbath day. Don't judge one another over these things. Or a Sabbath day. The weekly celebration of the seventh day that was set aside for rest. He's clearly saying, don't judge one another about these things. No one is to act as judge in regard to these things. Now, that makes little to no sense if we are still required under the new covenant to observe the Sabbath, doesn't it? I mean, it makes little sense even if Sunday is to be regarded as the new Sabbath. Right? Christians have utter liberty when it comes to that because Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law and we're no longer under it. Now, Hebrews 10.25 says that we are not to forsake the assembling together of believers in historically our forebears and Christians in the New Testament, they did that on the Lord's Day, which is why we're here on the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. Okay, we live under the law of Christ, and we joyfully live out the spirit of the old covenant, the spirit of the law. We, we joyfully live that out, just like Ahimelech lived out the spirit of the law to David. We do that. We love our neighbor as ourself, and we give, and we love one another, and we give our lives, and we love God. Now, there's a lot more we could say about that. Jason just did a Sunday school series on uh, that touched on this issue, on law keeping, um, Christian liberties rather, and that's uh, should be published online. One of them is. One of them didn't get recorded. But if you're interested in more, hearing more about that, I would encourage you to listen to that Sunday school lesson. All right, let me let me wrap all this up here. So we've seen in verses 25 and 26. Jesus makes an appeal to an example from Scripture. Remember, that what he's doing is he's arguing for his lordship over the Sabbath. So point number one for him, his first step is to appeal to the authority of Scripture. And then verse 27, we've seen that he appeals to biblical reasoning. And then lastly, in verse 28, his argument culminates with a final appeal to his personal authority. And that's clear. Look at verse 28. So the Son is of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that would have come as the most shocking statement of all to Jesus' rivals. Okay? And unfortunately, we are out of time. And we'll pick back up with verse 28 and go through chapter 3 and verse 6 uh, the next time we're together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
We love your law. We love your word. We love that you have given us a spirit to obey and to keep your law. And we love, Father, that most of all, you have given us your son to be the Lord of our lives, to be the substitutionary sacrifice for us, to live and die in our place. We thank you for his life, his resurrection, and current reign for us. And Lord, we thank you that he is truly the Lord. We thank you that the Pharisees did not win the battle, but that Christ won, demonstrated his lordship. We thank you that through Christ's arguments here, we see that you, Father, are the loving and gracious, benevolent, kind God that you are and always have been. And we trust, Father, that you will continue to be all that you have been for your people throughout history. And Lord, we love you in Christ's name. Amen.